I don't know about you, but uh, have you ever been in a meeting or in a situation where you were suddenly found yourself being put on the spot? Where you might say all of a sudden the uh, focus was on you in a very direct way. Uh, there have certainly been times over the last number of years where I've been, have sat around a table discussing uh, various issues, various questions, uh, sometimes concerning things about church. And uh, so you have this conversation going around a table and people sharing their ideas. And then all of a sudden, the conversation comes to an end and somebody says... So, Doug, you've been quite quiet. What do you think? And suddenly this conversation that you've been part of and maybe even contributing to uh, becomes something very personal. That uh, sort of maybe a philosophical discussion uh, where you may have thought, well, I've got something to contribute gets to a place where they're asking you about, okay, Doug, what's your position? Many would say that Mark chapter 8, the last part of, of Mark, raises the most significant question that Jesus ever asked of his disciples. And it remains, I think, the most significant question that the Christian faith has to ask, what do you make of Jesus? In Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and 28, it says this, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, uh, some say Elijah, and others say that you are actually one of the prophets. So in this chapter, Jesus' question is first asked in terms of, you might say, what is the word on the street? When you hear people talking about me, how are they referencing me? How are they, how do they see me? And I think it's interesting that even if you might say the word on the street from people who have maybe been observing Jesus is actually quite perceptive. They know that this is no ordinary man. So they immediately began to process Jesus in terms of, I would say, their own perhaps spiritual history as a people. So maybe he's a new version of Elijah or a new version of John the Baptist or maybe he is simply another in a long line of prophets we are used to as a people having prophets speak into our nation. And then Jesus changes the questions and he says... 
you have been walking with me. You have been listening to me speak. You have been observing me. And in Mark 8.29, it says, Then he asked them, the disciples, But who do you say I am? And although we only get one response, I'm not sure if all the other disciples were just waiting for Peter to answer for them, but it's Peter's response that is recorded, and it says, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And as I thought about that, it, the answer is correct. That Peter is correct, that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one of God. But his reasoning was flawed. Jesus continues the conversation with Peter and with the disciples by talking for the first time about what lay ahead for him as Messiah about what it will mean for him to be the Messiah. In Mark 8, 31 to 33, it says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I think it's so interesting in that verse, he says, and he was stating the matter plainly. That this was not a parable that needed to be interpreted or explained. This was plain, literal language. This is what's going to happen to me as Messiah. And for Peter, and those who would be waving palm branches, that kind of a description would not have fit their understanding of a victorious, powerful, earthly Messiah. That Peter, when he said, you are the Messiah, was actually expecting and hoping for something completely different. Not about suffering, not about rejection, not about being killed. I thought about Peter's thinking. And I went uh, for perhaps maybe my own curiosity to, to a website that talked about what is it that Orthodox Jews believe. People who are truly still waiting for a Messiah. And I, I think this was a credible website. There was lots written there. But from a Jewish person's point of view, and from the disciples' point of view, and the people who were waving palm branches, this and these following statements probably were what they were actually thinking about. 
And this is what it said on this website, which is kind of about, okay, if you want to know about what makes an Orthodox Jew an Orthodox Jew, what do we believe? I took these things. The Creator is only one. The Creator is not one of two, nor one of three. The Creator cannot die, the Creator cannot suffer, and the Creator cannot bleed. The Creator is not a man, and no human can be God. The Creator cannot be hanged on a cross to die or flogged like a criminal. The Creator does not have a mediator. The Christian faith, we say that Jesus is our mediator between us and God. Nor does the Creator need a mediator. Furthermore, humanity does not need a mediator to have a relationship with the Creator. We use the term Jewish Bible. We do not use the term Old Testament because we find that term insulting and also because we do not accept the so-called New Testament. Judaism has no concept of being brought to salvation. No one is in need of saving. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought the world down to a more physical level. Now the work for spirituality is more difficult, but the rewards are greater. We are not born in sin. We are all born with a clean slate, we are all born to improve ourselves through our work for spirituality. And what is the work for spirituality? All we need to do is study the Torah and fulfill the commandments we are able to fulfill or to honestly and sincerely attempt to fulfill the commandments as Hashem has instructed us. There was much more on there about this is our view and for me, I'd never read those things ever before. And I found myself going, wow. That is such a rejection of the Christian faith and the Messiah. And it's interesting, I went to another uh, site uh, that talked about how would you convert to Judaism? And it struck me very strange. It said that, well, if the rabbi was doing his job, he would try to dissuade you as a non-Jewish person from becoming a Jew. And he would dissuade you by telling you how difficult it was, what the demands were, to test to see whether you were actually serious about converting. However, if your mother was a Jew, whether she is practicing or not, you are in. Not a question about beliefs, not a question about heart, not a question about what you truly believe is just that, well, your mother was born a Jew, so you're a Jew, you're good to go. 
So why do I say all this? In this story, when Peter says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the sent one of God. And Jesus says, well, you know what? This is what lies ahead for me. Suffering, rejection, death. The story says Peter actually pulls Jesus aside in order to correct Jesus. In order to set Jesus straight. In fact, in some translations it says Peter rebukes the Son of God. And it's as if Peter is saying to Jesus, when we use the word Messiah, we mean this. And Jesus' response to Peter is incredibly direct. Mark 8.33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. I know when I have read that, I've certainly read that verse many times throughout my life. I, I always struggled with it a bit. That this man who had just correctly identified Jesus as Messiah is now being rebuked and said, Satan, get behind me. But I think that comment, it even says that it looks like he's facing the disciples while he's making that comment. I believe that comment is directed both at Satan and at Peter. That Jesus is not calling Peter Satan, but he recognizes in Peter's response the voice of the enemy. And I think that voice would have sounded very similar to the voice that had tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And if you go to that section, it says, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's what Peter had in mind. When Peter said Messiah, he's thinking about the kingdom of the world, glory, power. And it says, if you will kneel down and worship me, uh, Satan says to him, Jesus, I'll give it all to you if you kneel down and worship me. And Jesus says, get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I think the rebuke that Jesus directs toward Peter is a rebuke toward the voice of the enemy. But I also think there is also a rebuke to Peter. That Jesus is saying to Peter, your thinking reflects the thinking of this world. You are thinking about Messiah like King Herod would. It's about position, about power, about control, about status. And Jesus begins in this chapter to paint a picture of life in his kingdom. And what he paints is also not likely what Peter and the disciples had in mind. It says this, And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, 
If you want to follow me in this kingdom, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, could have been written 2017, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I'm sure the disciples would have gone, wow, what are you talking about? Denying yourself, picking up a cross, losing your life in order to gain it. As I read this section, the question about who do you say that I am, and Jesus' response to Peter, you are thinking exactly like the world you are living in. Suddenly in all this, there was something that was very much directed towards me as a child of God. I need to ask, keep asking those two questions of myself. Who do I believe that Jesus is? And is my mind focused on the kingdom of God or am I thinking in the same way the world around me is thinking? Kingdom of God is not about gaining control. It's not about gaining status. It's not about rising up in terms of your position. It is about giving up control. It's about being willing to follow, and it's about being willing to serve. That how we live, how we work, how we prioritize life is not simply about looking out for number one, but seeing ourselves at best as number two. That at best, we are followers of Jesus. But I think very often within the Christian life, we are called to live as number three. We are called to follow Jesus, and we are called to serve one another. That within the church of God, and Paul said this in many of his letters, put the interests of other people ahead of your own. I think that's what is meant when Jesus said you need to deny yourself, you need to pick up your cross, and you need to follow Jesus. In this kingdom, generosity is valued, serving is valued, hospitality is valued, forgiveness is valued, humility and patience are valued. Denying ourselves does not mean we are to drag ourselves around trying to show how heavy a burden we carry as followers of Jesus. 
The Pharisees actually were quite good at that. Jesus actually said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That the cross we are called to carry is nothing compared to what Jesus carried for us on the cross. That Jesus, I think, would say to us, you will find that the stress and strain that I put on your life is nothing compared to that of the religious leaders who bog you down with rules and expectations. And I would say that the burden that Jesus calls us to carry may actually also be less than the stress and strain you may put on yourselves by fixating on the things of this world. And so I would ask myself, how well am I doing in following Jesus? How well am I doing in serving the church of God? Lastly, in this passage, we are challenged, I think, to boldly identify as followers of Jesus. And it's interesting, Peter, who got the answer right, and he got the answer right almost immediately, when push came to shove in Peter's own life, when his own Safety was at stake. This same bold Peter denied that he had ever been with Jesus. Says Peter swore, curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And as you read that in various gospels, after saying that it said Peter went off and he wept. And yet this man became the rock upon which Jesus said, I will build my church. This same Peter became an incredibly powerful evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This same Peter became willing to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ, that his life began to reflect what this kingdom that Jesus was talking about was all about. There's some amazing passages in the beginning of the book of Acts of these same disciples who were so uncertain about who Jesus was prior to his death and resurrection. And then you read the first chapters of Acts and you listen to how powerfully they proclaimed the gospel of the resurrection. And it says this, and I should have put the passage down, I noticed I didn't. When leaders were not sure, political leaders were not sure what to do with people like Peter and John. They heard their message. They saw people respond. And yet there were those who wanted to have these disciples brought to task. 
And so they suffered punishment for doing absolutely nothing wrong. They were imprisoned for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And it says in Acts, now when they, that's the people around Peter and John, saw the boldness. And I thought, this is boldness in such a different context. This is boldness in the face of suffering. And they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And the comment was, and they realized they had been with Jesus. These people, this Peter, John, others, these are people who have been with Jesus. And I thought, what if that could be said of us as people? And what if that could be said as, of us as a church? That we are bold. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that people might say they have been with Jesus. We fight against, I'm going to say, complacency. We do. I do. We, we fight against kind of our own comfort. And I think we need at times a renewed perspective of who we are. As children of God. We need a new perspective of our call to follow Jesus serve one another, and to be unashamed ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 14 to 16, I thought this sums it up so well. It says, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And then he says, it's almost like in a little addition. And by the way, don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are sacrifices that please God. So we, I, I think, need to regularly stop and check our own perspective. That Jesus would ask of me, Doug, who do you say that I am? Doug, are you unashamed of acknowledging me? Doug, are you willing to follow me and to serve others? I've often wondered exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about taking up your cross. And as I thought of that this week and maybe last week, I, I don't think it's terribly difficult concept. I believe your cross and my cross is the life that God has given us. And that your life and the things that you face in your life, the challenges or even the blessings you face in your life, your life is the cross that Jesus asks you to bear. And we are called to carry it. 
We're called to live it out unashamedly as children of the Most High God. This coming week, you know, and I encourage you if, uh, if it's possible for you to, uh, to join uh, Willow Park Church at the Community Theater downtown. I think it's a great venue in the middle of the city, public place to declare that we are children of God, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And then that next Sunday, we would celebrate that sin, that death has been overcome. And that life as we know it and as we live it out in these physical bodies at some point is going to come to an end and we will be ushered into the presence of God. It's an incredible message that we carry. And it's part of the reason maybe as I look ahead and I think about the summer and about what God might have for us as a church, I think he, he's given us an opportunity to be a bit more bold about who we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you speak through your word. Father, I thank you, God, that there is life to be found within the words of the Bible. And Father, I pray that we even this morning and as we go through this week, we would think about the question that Father was asked of Peter and asked of the disciples. And that, Father, you would burn in our hearts a desire to truly live out our faith and give our allegiance to you as the one true and only living God. So, Father, I pray that you would walk with us through this week. Uh, walk with us through the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And Father, as we gather on Friday, I pray that, Father, it would be a reminder for us as a church, as a people, the great cost of our salvation and the great miracle of the resurrection, of newness of life through the gift of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I just pray and thank you that you will walk with us this week. Help us be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.